With that, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Another wonderful story. Luke 5, we'll begin reading at verse 27 until verse 32. Hear God's word, Luke chapter 5. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this incredible word endures forever. Let's ask God's blessing on it. Thanks, Lord Jesus, for this being the purpose of your mission. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would melt our hearts and console and energize our minds with this Wonderful truth, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So it's another just amazing vignette to tell us something more about Jesus's redeeming grace. This story is for you. In fact, as great as the other stories we've looked at in our section, and they all are just wonderful, picturesque, beautiful, endearing stories, you know, the great catch and the leper and the paralytic, they actually all build up to this story. This is the most important one in this section. And our section again is verse one of chapter five to verse 16 of chapter six. And the point of our section, as we've said, is that yes, they magnify Jesus. They magnify him by showing how he carries out that mission statement in his inaugural sermon when he takes that Isaiah passage and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, that is fulfilled in your hearing because I'm here. And that starts off all of Luke Acts. And so, yes, our section is one of those early sections that just magnify Jesus's redeeming, releasing mission, that day of grace, what he's about when he's here. And in addition to that, this section also displays people's responses to Jesus in a real emotive, you know, um, one person looking at Jesus, engaging with Jesus' way, it displays their responses. So the importance of this story is just shown, one, in its central place in our section, but also in the fact that this is the most powerful, beautiful response in our section. 
And in addition to that, that in this story, Jesus re-clarifies his mission. So this is the key story of the section. So we're gonna break it up into four movements. Jesus's call, Levi's response, the Pharisees' objection, and Jesus's explanation. Jesus' call, Levi's response, the Pharisees' objection, Jesus' explanation. So first, Jesus calls Levi or Matthew. They're the same person. Many had double names in Scripture. So Jesus calls Levi, Matthew. So Luke says in our little story, after this, he went out. So it's after what? He went out. It looks like probably after leaving that cramped, stifling, dusty house, You remember those friends of the paralytic dug up the roof, all that debris falls on Jesus and Jesus heals the paralytic in response to their faith, the five people's faith. So Jesus kind of had to go get some fresh air after that. So he leaves and walks out. Mark 2 says that he actually went beside the Sea of Galilee. He goes and walks by the sea. But he's not alone because Mark also tells us that he continues to teach. He is just so available and so accessible. Sometimes we wonder, does he have time for us? But even after doing all these very intense moments that you and I would probably say, I need need a moment, he continues to be accessible, open, available to people who come to him. But in the midst of this, Something else is going on. In the midst of this, Jesus has an agenda. He has a definite purpose in walking by the sea because he knows that a man is there. He knows that Levi is there at his tax collecting booth near that spot in the Sea of Galilee. The sense is, He doesn't just happen upon Levi and on the spot just casually invite him to follow him. The sense is, you know, that Jesus has been in Capernaum for quite a while now and they've most likely, almost certainly, rubbed shoulders before. He's spoken with him before they know each other a bit. That's how Jesus tends to work with the four fishermen back with the catch. We see that they already had a relationship when Jesus called them to be fishers of men. It was the same with Levi, and this word for sea is a real intense word. The commentator Daryl Bach says it this way, it indicates that Jesus consciously singles this man out. It didn't just happen upon him. He consciously singles him out. He wanted to find him. He goes on to say that it is no accident that Jesus selects Levi. Jesus shows the type of person to whom he wishes to minister and to whom he wishes to show God's way. Jesus takes the initiative with the rejected. He went after Levi, the rejected. He goes after the outcast and the undesirable, the one who apparently is too far gone. That's who Jesus goes out after. Another commentator says he especially goes out to the outrageous sinner. Grace goes. He's the embodiment of grace. He goes to the person in deepest need. He singled him out and taken the initiative to go for him. 
You see, as you know, the Jews despised tax collectors. They just despised them. They were viewed as thieves and traitors. Rome gave the right to collect taxes, and here the tax is some kind of import-export tax. There's this, there's this road that went from Memphis and Egypt all the way up to Syria. It's this big thoroughfare, and Capernaum had to be on that road. So he has this tax-collecting booth, and he's collecting dues on imports and exports, movement of goods along this road. And so you imagine, you know, fishermen have to deal with that too. It's by the sea. People didn't like him, so... What would happen is Rome gave the right to collect taxes uh, to the highest bidder. So the highest bidder would be a person. He would be some wealthy or influential Roman citizen. So this person would stand up and he knew that Rome needed to collect taxes and so he would bid on it. And so he would win the bid and actually he'd be called literally a tax farmer. And he'd either sublet that right to or hire a chief tax collector. Now, we're going to end up getting to a chief tax collector. And who's that? A little man, Zacchaeus. In fact, this story and Zacchaeus serve as bookends. Well, Zacchaeus, or a, or a chief tax collector, would hire subordinate tax collectors, and Levi was one of them, and they would be the ones that are actually face-to-face charging the dues. So the chief ones would be able to stand back, but Levi was actually mixing it up and charging people. So the bidder, the tax farmer, had to cover Rome's tax quota, but anything over that, he and his associates got to pocket And so you see the whole system is set up, arranged, designed, it aims to get as much money as you can get from the people that you're charged to tax. Whatever like reasonably the market would hold that you can take that money and anything over that, you know, that you had to submit to Rome, anything over that was yours. So all Jews that worked within this system, they weren't just low-life scoundrels, seedy, unsavory people that were trying to take advantage of you. They were that. But in addition to that, they were collaborators with Rome. They had opted for Rome. Under the present circumstances, life is hard, I'm going for Rome. And so they were betraying their own people, God's people, cheating, extorting them to get rich. They're out for themselves. And then just to think, Levi's name meant he was from the priestly tribe. Levi. You know, he was supposed to be of the tribe that represented the people to God. But he's become a man who represents Rome's power and abuse to the people. They would have spit when they thought of Levi. They loathed Levi. And yet, Jesus calls this man. There's a host of other options. How many other options? Many varieties of options. Jesus singles Levi out. I mean, it would have made much better sense if Jesus went to the local synagogue ruler, went over to the synagogue, and just said, who's showing up for Sunday school? Who's taking care of their families? Who are your men that are above reproach, you know, hospitable, that, you know, aren't lovers of money. Sounds like our requirements for officers. 
It would have made tons more sense for Jesus to find his 12 that way, but Jesus goes instead to a man who's betrayed his own people and chosen money over loyalty. He calls a shunned pariah to society. And Jesus approaches him, and for the first time in Luke, he hasn't actually said this yet, he just looks at Levi in his tax collecting booth right in the middle of plying his trade and says, follow me. He says it to Levi. I mean, Peter did this after the catch. He was so stunned by the overwhelming nature of grace. Jesus says, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men, and he leaves on, follows Jesus. But Jesus didn't actually say, follow me, Peter. He looks at Levi and says, follow me. What must that have been to Levi, this incredibly important person that you suspect is more than just an ordinary man, and he's doing these amazing things and has been so for quite a while, and he looks at you and says, I want you to be my disciple, a learner, and follow me around. I want to spend time with you. I want you to be on my team. I want you to be a friend, family. I want you in my inner circle, this man. And that's what grace is. I want to have a committed friendship Discipler, disciple relationship with you. you can, I'm going to own you as my learner. Well, Levi responds, Levi's response, Levi responds fully to Jesus before that. I mean, he must have blown him away. Jesus says to Levi, follow me, and there's no hesitation, none. Levi just says, leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Um, Luke describes this Levi as the ideal model disciple. Just promptly leaves it, rises, follows. He leaves everything. He leaves more than Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He leaves more than the fishermen. You recall when things got kind of testy, they were able to return to their boats. And it was all kosher. But you see, Levi can't go back. There's no way if things don't turn around with, turn out well with Jesus, he can just go back and enter this system, this mafia, this lucrative trade. They're just not gonna let him back in. He leaves it all. Like he, he burns the ships in a way. One commentator like he says, there's some quiet heroism here. You know, we don't hear much about Levi. Amazingly, you know, he writes a gospel, which is just great. But we don't hear much about him. You know, Peter and James and John, they're always doing things, and we don't hear much from Levi, but there's a quiet heroism here. He couldn't go back. He's thrown in his lot with Jesus, come what may. And the idea of rise, the, the word rose there is past tense. It's simple past. It's one and done. But followed is imperfect. He was following Jesus. And the point there is it refers to an ongoing process. He's entered a new life, a whole new existence. The old is gone. The new has come. He's now no longer the tax collector. He's the follower of Jesus. And it also means to say that what is about to happen is one of the expressions of what it looks like. A good example of what following Jesus looks like. 
Luke throws a party. And that's a good expression of a follower of Jesus. He throws this huge feast in his home. He pulls out all the stops. One commentator says, the banners are flying. <laughs> he's like, he's not easing into this new existence. He is out there. And he is excited about it. And this from a man who just lost his job. It's tough, tough to lose your job. Walk out on all that money. He probably had his life traced out. You know, I'm going to do this 15 years and... I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm going to go somewhere fun. He's left all that behind. It just does not matter to him. Jesus has singled him out. And for Jesus to show him, of all people, such a welcome, such favor, such attention, is just overwhelming to him. And the only possible way he can think of to express this unbridled joy is to host this festive, elaborate banquet in his home and spend everything he has left, which is what looks like probably happened. And you see, that is the emotive force of receiving such a gospel. It's not a casual experience. It's I'm Levi, you've shown me that welcome. I'm amazed and stunned, overflowing with that kind of joy. It's nothing less for us. And so Levi also wants his former business associates and friends to meet Jesus. I will speak pleasantly. I will speak well of my physician, John Newton said. He burns a bridge in terms of his occupation, but he doesn't burn a bridge in terms of his relationships. Levi is the host, Jesus is the honored guest, and he wants those that he's been tied up with in this system, this kind of mafia system. He now wants not to be a collaborator in evil, but now he wants to offer them what no money can buy. He wants all those who live like he did to meet the one who changed his life. It's a party full of tax collectors and others. It's kind of a funny way to say it, others. I mean, it includes Jesus' disciples, but, you know, other kinds of wicked people are there. So Levi used to be bound up with these people to use people to get rich. Now he wants to influence all of them with what is far better than the idol of money and possessions, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shares the joy of his salvation with those he knows. There's no timidity, reticence. There's just joy. Let me tell you about this person that's changed my life. I found what we're all looking for. Imagine the sympathy, like we're all looking for something. I found this treasure that you and I have been looking for, and just, it's just not what we thought it was. It's the pearl of great price. Let me, let me introduce you to him. Well, the Pharisees just can't handle this. The Pharisees and scribes object to Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees' objection, point three. So they object to Jesus and his disciples. They say, probably sometime after the feast, because they weren't exactly invited to the feast. You know, I mean, they just weren't the target audience to the feast. Uh, they probably you know, wouldn't have set foot there. So probably sometime later, 
they come up to the disciples and Jesus is evidently close by and they say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a grumbling. It's they're, they're really frustrated with Jesus and his disciples. It's like, what are you thinking? Like, how could you do this? And so it's not that they're just prudish killjoys that don't like a good party. That's not the Pharisees. They love a good party. They believe when Messiah comes, when the kingdom of God appears in their midst, that it's going to be a huge, joyful feast and they're going to be invited. And they can't wait for this. They've, they've arranged their whole life for this. In a, in a sense, all other feasts are just preparations for this feast. And you see, throughout Luke, we're going to talk about feasts a lot. Because feasts are so important for Luke. Table fellowship is so important. They anticipate the wedding feast of the Lamb. So they're important. And the Pharisees are longing for that. They're in agreement with that. But in their view, the way to get there to that feast is to guard the highest degree of ceremonial cleanness and stay separate from all impurity and occasions for impurity. The problem isn't the party. The problem is the guest list. How could you include that kind of person in the party that anticipates the wedding feast? And so they come up Jesus with something like this. Behind all that, Jesus, there's no way you can stay ceremonially clean and eat with such people. The food can't be kosher. And surely that seedy crowd has done something or a variety of things that make them unclean. You can't mix it up with them. Or Jesus, they've opted for Rome against us. They're, they're not just traitors to the covenant people, they're enemies of God. And you can eat with them? Jesus, to eat with them is to accept them, to befriend them, to give a welcome to them, to share your life with them. Do you understand that? Jesus, they represent everything wrong in society. <laughs> I mean, they're the drag on the nation being who the nation needs to be. Like, how can you affirm them and condone them? I mean, we want to be a nation that God blesses and you're hindering and hurting that by eating with them. You see, the Pharisees were this influential lay holiness movement, this revival project they, they represent a system, an approach to sin and corrupting influences. And their way that influenced the society was, look, stay away from them, don't get contaminated, put up barriers and fences, keep them outside so they don't corrupt you. Only in this way can we maintain ourselves pure. Only in this way will God come and restore us and bless us. It's very important you do this, Jesus. And really, it makes sense. It makes sense, especially in a nation that's been overrun by a pagan power that is in the minority, who feels the encroach of the world, who has terrible events in the past, who's bitter, who's fearful, who's struggling just to survive. It makes sense. I mean, we probably, you and I, if we were there, we'd probably say the same thing. That's where we would find ourselves. 
I think that's where I would find myself. You see, we get alarmed by the corrupting influences in our culture. We get bittered, we get fearful. We latch on to verses like, go out from the midst and be separate, or don't be conformed to this world. Very important verses, but we tend to view them as, they're what's wrong in our society. We have to protect ourselves from them, and that becomes our approach to the world. I mean, think of the movements that worry you in our culture, and they're, they're real. Think of how that makes you feel, the, the worry and the fear. What do you find churning up within you as you think about it, as you handle it, as you conduct your life? As maybe if you see or encounter someone who kind of represents that movement in a way, and maybe in your desire to, to be truthful and toe the line and, and guard God's law, you almost can't deal with an individual. You know, it, it's movement. You see individuals through the movement. I mean, our tendency, it's very natural. You know, Paul Miller, the default posture of the human heart is, is a Phariseeism like this. But you, you sink into a case like this and you say, man, I... You know, I kind of understand it. We circle the wagons and we put up barriers. We gotta stay away from the corrupting influences of our increasingly hostile culture. I mean, we can sympathize very directly more and more. How do you speak truth while being charitable and gracious to people, you know? How do you deal with your heart and the fear and the bitterness of your heart in, in the way of the gospel? And so this brings up a host of different questions and, and, and probing things to think through. The Pharisees object and we have to say, well, I understand it. Well, let's think about Jesus' explanation. Jesus explains himself to the Pharisees and scribes and us. You see, once again, we'd never come up with the gospel. We couldn't do it. I mean, it lays our own sin far too open and bare, and it lifts up grace as far too incredible and free. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees and scribes, and he says these beautiful words, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amazing. So one, just notice that Jesus doesn't try to explain away the crowd he's hanging out with. He doesn't try to paint them better than they are. <laughs> he accepts the posture of the Pharisees, their evaluation of them. They are sick and they are sinners. They're sick and they're sinners. But he rejects the Pharisees' remedy for that. The Pharisees would say they're contagious, keep away from them. And Jesus would counter, quarantine isn't the answer, treatment is. How do you deal with them? You go to them, you pursue them, you take the initiative with them, you do not stay away from them. Because that's why I'm here. <laughs> I could have stayed away from you. 
And so don't you know that Dr. Luke loved the fact Jesus applied this proverb to himself? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Don't you know he loved viewing Jesus as a good physician? You see, Jesus is saying to us, if you think healing a leper is a big deal, if you think healing a paralytic is amazing, that's nothing compared to healing a sin-sick heart. It's nothing. This is the deal right here. How do you change a Levi? Changing him from a man who uses people for love of money into a man who loves people with his money. That's bigger than healing a leper. It's bigger than causing a paralytic to walk. It's the miracle of miracles. It's the most powerful healing of all that Dr. Luke loves as a man he wants to heal And he says, wait, church, you have that same powerful gospel word that heals like this. Jesus is like a medical doctor that's discovered the antidote to a terrible epidemic some primitive tribe is dying from. And so he correctly diagnoses the sickness, he develops the serum, and then he flies with all of his equipment all the way to that primitive tribe to offer them the cure. The reason he goes is to heal people. He doesn't go to spend time with well people. And so it gives him unbelievable joy when sick people come to him for what he has to offer them, which is exactly what they need. He's come to heal sick people. When our sin tells us we've got to run away, Jesus will never accept us. But wait, he came as a doctor with the serum you need and it gives him joy to heal you of your Sin, sickness, we go to him with that. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so that's why Jesus goes after people like Levi, spiritual lepers and paralytics. That's why he came and that's why he healed and that's what his healed people like you and me are also to do. He doesn't come to affirm them in their sin sickness, but notice he came to call them to repentance, to a life not following after some false savior, some idol, but following after Jesus and in that experiencing true healing. And so the Pharisees, their posture was that type of person has to change and clean up before he can get accepted. And Jesus is turning on them and saying, wait, Grace says otherwise. Grace says, I'm going after that person with initiative to welcome him and in that show him grace so he can change because nobody changes without the grace of God. No matter how good your manners and your record is, you don't change without the grace of God. And so Jesus offers an indirect rebuke to the Pharisees. It's really a gracious rebuke. He works with them too. They saw themselves as healthy and righteous. So Jesus, for the sake of argument, adopts their posture. He doesn't really say you are healthy and righteous, but okay, that's what you say. That's what you think. You're the healthy and the righteous. Well, if you are healthy and righteous, then you should be extending the same treatment I'm extending to them. That's the test. 
Because if you're healthy and righteous, you know the God of boundless love and grace and mercy who pursues sinners. And so you will reflect that posture towards those around you who are outrageous sinners. And Jesus challenges them in grace. He gives them what they need. It's a medical doctor treating them as well. Were you healthy and righteous, you'd reflect God's grace like this. The fact that you don't, let me tell you something you don't know, is that you are really sick and sinful. And until you realize you are sick and sinful, I haven't come for you. Like I've come, not for the smug and self-satisfied, I just haven't come for you. I've come for that person who realizes he's in desperate need. And he's urging them to see that, and they need to see that. It's a, it's a gracious call and rebuke to them. Don't settle in to your smugness and your self-satisfied righteousness. Recognize you too are sick and sinful. But you know the good news for that is, then I've come for you. And so Lawndale family, we get to look at this and just mull it over in our minds and deal with our own hearts. I get to deal with my heart. What would, what would the world say of us as a people, as a church? Would they say, man, I see it. I see something like this. I can't, I can't believe it in our world, but I see something like this in this local body of believers, of people that love the truth, but uncannily they can love the truth and love people with the same zeal, the same grace. They gave me a welcome into their lives. They shared their lives with me. Well, never compromising truth, but they saw me as who I am. And they loved me and went after me. Might it be? Might we be people that know we are lepers and paralytics that get to show people where the good physician is? It might just flow from our whole demeanor. You see, the message of the gospel is not only a message of Christ crucified for sinners like you and me, praise God, but it's also the means and the manner by which we do mission. Something of the cross flavors and there's an aroma in the way we live and treat others. And it's a process, and our good physician works with strange refractory patients like us. And in that process shows us how immeasurable his grace is to you. We have a good redeemer, good physician. It makes all the difference and calls us to know him. May it be the case, amen.